This episode is dedicated to Sue Key for her one-time donation on Ko-Fi and to our anonymous producer who joined in at the $50 tier on Patreon. Thank you for making this project possible. Hey, listeners. So we have some changes to announce for the rest of this season of Southpaw Deep Space Nine. With Angel not only in school, but changing careers while working a day job and other personal obligations, he won't be able to join us for a while. But since the theme of the show has always been talking about Star Trek as if we were sports commentators, we're subbing in a new star player to take over the open spot. Kind of like the Ultimate Warrior replaced Hulk Hogan, if you will. And that's previous guest Scott Thero. Scott, can you introduce yourself to listeners and remind everyone who you are and how you got into Star Trek? I'd love to. And uh, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, very gracious that I'm able to yeah, sub in because I can never replace Angel, but I can just do me. Um, yeah, I am Scott Thoreau. I am a musician, musician, social worker mostly. I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I come from Brooklyn, New York. I appeared previously on the Nagus episode. I am a trekker all the way through and through. I started because my father was a trekker. I'm sort of named after officer scotty from the original series <laughs> i can i can get into that another time it's good to give people little morsels and i've just loved star trek and as as i've grown star trek has grown with me and as i've become more and more entwined in being certain of my leftist ideals i'm able to revisit Star Trek from that lens. And for the most part, I'm not disappointed, which makes me happy. That doesn't work with all different franchises and not even all Star Trek franchises, to be honest. All right, Mr. Thoreau, what episode are we discussing for this episode? So the episode we are discussing is in the Netflix order, episode 15, but in the production order, episode 16, If Wishes Were Horses, which is a shortening of the quote, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. I mean, I wish they would. And so this is an episode from season one that upon my two most recent rewatches, I had actually skipped because I was avoiding some of the less mythology dense episodes or the episodes that I thought might have been a little silly. <laughs> but I'm really glad that I rewatched this one because there are some themes and thoughts that I was able to really put some thought into. And there is some development of Bashir and Dax and the tertiary character of the Cisco's baseball 
that I thought was really special in this episode. So we open with a furthering of the Odo Quark dyad, where they're at opposing ends talking about joy and pleasure and imagination. And and we see Jake Sisko, he's playing baseball in the hollow suites against fame, um, famed baseball player of mythology, Buck Bakai. Then we have Dax and Bashir trying, Bashir is really trying to make Dashir happen. But Dax points out that Bashir is getting around. He he is seeing a lot of people. And <laughs> that sort of character trait will be developed throughout. And you sort of see that Bashir is just lonely. And Jedzia Dax is a several centuries old person who's lived many lives and is just more mature than what their relationship could offer. She's like, you're doing okay by yourself. And this is, this is not happening. We're, (laughs) we're not working. (laughs) One thing I wanted to mention quickly about the opening scene, I think Quark was talking about the hollow suites and then making an allusion to what sounded like Disneyland. And it was funny to me that Quark is trying to reinvent Disneyland, which means Earth capitalists were hundreds of years ahead of Ferengi capitalists. Right, that they somehow hadn't thought of this way to make money. And I really do enjoy the the foil of Odo and Quark, both being different sides of, in my opinion, at least in this season, a more right sort of thought. But Odo's like, why would people want to have fun? I don't understand (laughs) fun. And and it makes me think of this argument sometimes that I hear on the internet or when I'm talking to people at my job, when people are like, oh, why do people that don't have a lot of money have, have an Xbox or a PlayStation or do nice <laughs> things? Like if you don't have money, you're not supposed to have enjoyment or you shouldn't, you, you only deserve entertainment or, or imagination if somehow you, if you have excess money which I always thought was a very silly argument. And that's my headcanon of, of Odo before he gets more. His, he develops over the show quite a bit and quirks just a little bit. A lot of times when they open with these two characters or they have meandering scenes with them just discussing stuff, like two guys at a bar with distinct personalities, it sounds very much like early conversations about capitalism by an early capitalist, maybe like a Dutch colonizer or, you know, an Adam Smith type versus not their opposite, but another type of reactionary, which might be like a Hobbesian who just cares about an aesthetic, orderly life. So it's like the early foundations of capitalism with an older traditional version of conservative politics. Right. I totally agree. Because like in the Overton window, they're both to the right but different versions of it. And it sort of reminds me of when I would when I would go to a bar and I was developing my politics. I mean, I never was either of those points, but I, I remember giving a copy of Noam Chomsky to, to this person who was a libertarian and no longer a libertarian. So <laughs> that's all it took, huh? Was just a book? Book, conversation, love, slow work. I'm willing to have the conversations with people of diametrically opposed thought 
as long as they're not insulting, racist, or piece of shit, or all three, and are are coming at it in good faith. If you're not good faith, goodbye. But if you're good faith, I I, w- I didn't I wasn't born a socialist. I wasn't born with the views that I had. I had to work on them, and so I try to be patient. Again, unless it's bad faith, then I don't have time for it. And and again, if you want to see what what libertarians Star Trek looks like, watch Babylon Five or Firefly, but Babylon Five is better. But you like Babylon Five, right? I love Babylon Five. I don't know anything about the show, but the world is much more libertarian. I think I think it comes from a more libertarian, pro-capitalist worldview, and yeah, I think it's a great show. I think it's a very good counterpoint to the Star Trek world. So Dax is noticing that there are emissions. They're thinking that it's possibly wormhole stuff. And that's how we set up these story morsels. We have a few clues. We have baseball, friend zone, and a very touching moment where O'Brien is reading his kid a story about Rumpelstiltskin and actually has one of the more tender moments with Keiko. Sometimes their their connections are described and not shown. Yeah. We haven't seen her at all in this whole season other than at the beginning and now, right? Right. And it's just very sweet. And it's just sort of a nice, it's just like a few a few sentences of, you know, you're reading your kid a bedtime story, but there's a tenderness and camaraderie and cooperation that, that reminds you that they really do love each other. And it's just sort of like a conversation I'd have with my partner when you're doing something, but you're also sharing your love for them. And he's telling a story about Rumpelstiltskin. And fun fun little fact, which I'll get to. And after he's telling the story of Rumpelstiltskin, his daughter says, Dad, 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 Rumpelstiltskin is here. And everyone's believing, no, 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 no. And then he, then O'Brien opens the door. And the gentleman says, don't look so distraught. And it is Rumpelstiltskin, played by Michael Anderson, who we is most famously known as the backwards talking man in the Twin Peaks, and Samson from Carnival. And he plays Rumpelstiltskin. And it was a fun story. Originally, when the script was written, it was going to be a leprechaun and not Rumpelstiltskin. And Colmaney was like, nah. <laughs> so so the imaginations are starting to become real. So a version of Jadzia Dax is starting to try to get with Bashir, but her character and her disposition is so different from the Dax that Bashir knows that he knows something is up because even though he would love to have an affair with her, he doesn't like it like this. She's 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 a she's not she's not the Jadzia we know. And then all of a sudden, Bud Bakai shows up, the the baseball player. It's a and then we have some really interesting convos. So we the we see that the two Daxes meet like oh shit, something's going on. And O'Brien and Rumpelstiltskin they are not vibing at all. The and Buck Bakai is noticing more of a camaraderie because, as we know, the Cisco's love baseball. When you think of the American ideal that doesn't really exist, there's just this ideal of they have family, they have food, they have 
a real relationship, the, the three generations of the Cisco men, because uh, Cisco's father, who owns a restaurant, is also very close with all of them. And there's a closeness and a tenderness and a love of baseball. And this a sad thing that you find out is that in the world of Deep Space Nine, baseball isn't really played anymore. But Cisco brought a hollow suite, hollow deck program so they could play baseball. Now, what do we think about that? That in the future, baseball ends because of lack of popularity? You know, if we had had this conversation a few years ago, I'd be like, no way. But according to baseball fans, baseball is not as popular as it used to be. So I foresee that it could possibly happen in this day and age or that there will be different sports. I, unrelated, I don't believe football as we know it will 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 exist in 60 years from now. It seemed to me like the writers were trying to make some type of commentary about baseball and also using baseball to illustrate the future. They didn't say it outright, but it seemed like they were saying baseball was losing popularity or it ended because the game is too slow. And as we go into the future, people want things that are quicker, that are more open-ended, that isn't so strictly structured. Yeah, which also could be like their veiled attempt at understanding a, a early internet, a early world of the technology that Deep Space Nine was happening in. And maybe the writers themselves, because they are science fiction writers, maybe there is some kind of bias with science fiction fans and writers where they feel like, or maybe it's a trope, where baseball is anachronistic. Because even probably at the time of the writing of the show, that trope had already existed, using baseball as a way to like flash back into the past or time travel stuff or nostalgia, or to create a setting in America's past, baseball is often used as a device. So maybe because of that, because it's association with the past, America's pastime, it seemingly seems like a anachronistic game. Maybe then to these science fiction writers, they're like, probably this isn't going to last in the future. Or Star Trek is so far in the future, it's the future of post-baseball. It's a post-baseball world. You know, that's a really good point because we don't, as far as I can tell, and if someone is listening can can point out my in, incorrectness, if that's even a word. In the, wor- in the world of Deep Space Nine, we're, we don't talk about any analogs or new games that people play on Earth. But they use that sport to character build Cisco to say he is old school, that he is anachronistic. And that also comes from his father, who still owns a restaurant. When you could replicate food, right? Right. They could replicate food, but this is their family. They, they love the classics. They love these games. And that's also interesting because then you have someone like Captain Picard, who in, in his world also has a vineyard. So even though he doesn't need to be. So we create these leaders as complicated, complex beings who are interested in things. And have you, have you ever seen Samurai Champloo? Yeah. Yeah, I talked to Angel about it in the last episode. Samurai Champloo and Deep Space Nine have two of the greatest baseball episodes of all time. Now, this this episode is not the baseball episode that we're talking about. We'll get there or you'll get there. But, ah, wonderful, wonderful shows that understand and appreciate that baseball is more about 
the experience than necessarily the game. Yeah, which also makes me think of my the person who's writing pushed me left and got me interested. You know, uh, C.L.R. James and his writing about cricket, which is one of the greatest sports books of all time. But and I I really relate to C.L.R. James period in in looking at sci-fi stories and stories of being someone I don't so I mean obviously I don't relate personally because very different backgrounds but I relate his stories to sci-fi a lot and so beyond a boundary his book about cricket is one of the finest sports books I've ever read and then he wrote a book uh, Mariners Castaways Runaways I may be misprint I may be not getting that totally correct but it's he he CLR James was in Ellis Island about to be deported and he was writing this treatise on America and Moby Dick and relating it all together and I think you can't have a story about captains and commanders and and not sort of make those sort of connections so a note to our loyal listeners if you love the Southpaw project Please support us and help us get paid for our labor, by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. There's some sort of, there, there's some sort of anomaly, there's something going on, that has created corporeal versions of characters or ideas. And the two Daxes do not get along because <laughs> one of the Daxes is Jedzia Dax, the headstrong, very interesting, complex person who's lived hundreds of years. And then this other Dax, which is a facsimile of Dax based on the desires of, of Bashir. And I there creates a really great scene where Bashir is very embarrassed about this version of Dax that comes from his imagination. And she points out, you know, this, you don't have to apologize. Your thoughts, we're not always in control of our thoughts. And if anything, it's unfair that we get to see that part of you. And that, that scene really gave some complexity and depth to Bashir that I hadn't thought about, and to Dax, and to the fear of being punished for thoughts. Also the fear of being exposed or discovered. To connect it back to real life, privacy for a lot of people is safety. Yeah, that's a good one. It made me think about how this is an episode about the liberal TED Talk idea of the world is made up of ideas rather than dialectical and historical materialism. You know how TED Talks is all about. Ideas change the world, right? And TED Talks didn't invoke that into the world. I think it was more drawing from an idea that already exists, that people already were believing that. That's basically liberalism. But it's also a very conservative idea as well, which liberalism is also very conservative. But this show then is an example of what it would look like if we took the figurative and made it literal, meaning that is not true, right? The world isn't just ideas, because if it was, 
And if ideas were reality, it would look like this episode. And we don't want that. Our, my, the, the work I do in therapy as, as a social worker and someone in therapy is about understanding my thoughts and not being my thoughts. And, you know, thoughts don't have morals, but our actions on our thoughts do. And as the people in Deep Space Nine are realizing that everyone's imagination and desires are coming true on the show. And so everyone is winning at Davos. Quark has like all these women around him. There's an, there's an ostrich running around Deep Space Nine, which is, I really enjoyed that. And Odo's Odo's desire is Quark being arrested. <laughs> and then as they're talking about, oh, there's this, this anomaly, as they talk about the anomaly, the, the anomaly starts getting bigger and bigger. And then they start, they find, they find a historical record of the Vulcans dealing with a similar anomaly, which wiped out an entire crew. And then it's getting bigger and bigger. And then something that really affected me is, Kira, her imaginations, her desires are are trauma. Her imaginations are shit going bad. Her imaginations are things going wrong because her life has been very traumatic. Her life has been fighting for survival. Her life has been liberating her people. So she can't, it's hard for her to imagine things that aren't challenging for her at this time so the rift gets larger and larger and nothing they're doing is working they decide to shoot torpedoes at it it doesn't work and the mirages are starting to one the mirage of of jedzia almost dies and the mirage of rumpelstiltskin says to o'brien give me the rights of my kids and We'll get this all away. And the only character actually that has a real relationship that doesn't freak everybody out is Buck Bakai. Buck Bakai has a real relationship with the Cisco's. And I, I sped up a little. There's, there's also a scene in the middle of all this where the Jadzia 2, Rumpelstiltskin and Buck Bakai meet and they're like, what's going on? They, they sort of reveal that they're talking to each other and they're like something's not going right. We're not connecting. And Buck Bakai is like, "Well, I'm I'm connecting," which brings us back to the present when it looks like everyone's going to die. The anomaly is going to take over every everything. Cisco makes a realization that all of this came from imagination. So he tells everybody to imagine things going back to normal and imagine things going away and to not think negatively. And lo and behold, everything goes back to normal. Everything gets reversed. And then seemingly the three Mirage characters disappear. And then in the final scene, the Mirage of Buck Bakai shows up to Cisco and reveals that they they are another species from a faraway place that 
are doing experiments to understand people and their desires. And they had never encountered people like them before with their imaginations. And they go, perhaps I'll see you again sometime. And Buck Bakai, who's obviously not Buck Bakai, disappears and we get to the credits. So one of the messages of this episode, whether it was consciously put there by the writers or they were just trying to world build and from building that world, we're able to draw upon things that would naturally be commentary from a literal figurative world is that we are not our thoughts, especially our momentary thoughts. And I think that's something the characters were realizing, whether it's the trauma or whether it's whatever they want at that moment, that doesn't fully define them. That's not all of who they are. Or it might not even be who they are. It might be who they don't want to be, or it might be just a memory they can't get over. So going back to what you were saying about social work and therapy, I think that's a good general reminder that we could have thoughts that are not our own, or we could have thoughts that don't define us. So knowing that that's not everything that is to us, or we are not only our thoughts, we are more than our thoughts, it helps us be easier on ourselves. It helps us live our day-to-day. It helps us overcome ourselves. It helps us be healthy people when we know that we are not just our thoughts because our imagination won't just think of things that are important to us or that are even conscious. It'll just think of things just because it wants to know what are all the different thoughts one can have. It just wants to experiment and be creative. And so then you're just like, huh, what about this? What about that? Your mind might meander and these are private thoughts. So you don't have as much to worry about as far as filtering. And then who knows what kind of thoughts you can have, right? But that doesn't mean that that's defining who you are. So I think that's an important message that whether the writers meant it or not, that we could take away from this episode. Right. I don't know what they meant, but I do know that I thought to agree with you in the conversation between Jadzia and Bashir, where where she's really validating his experience and his embarrassment by pointing out that, yeah, our thoughts are merely just our thoughts. As you said, we can't control them. In fact, sometimes they are very pervasive or they create ruminations or they bring us to our worst selves. And what makes humans truly remarkable, what makes people trying to change truly remarkable is their ability to, despite their thoughts, not act on the ones that they worry about, the the ones that may go against their own uh, ethics and morals. And there is there is this theory in psychology that you can start saying things that you don't believe and they can start helping you believe them which can be really helpful when you have really negative self-talk or negative viewings of yourself. And you say, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this. And then you can grow into that. And also, it's, it's a larger idea of, of the morality of experimentation. These visitors wanted to know something about the humans, so they made them relive their wildest dreams or worst nightmares and then think that they were going to die. Not very moral. (laughs) The way we think about imagination is, or even the way we always portray imagination is as a positive thing. 
but we can actually imagine very harmful things as well that can turn into actual material reality, as we saw in this episode. So imagination isn't always good. It can make us miserable. Our imaginations can make other people miserable. The imaginations of powerful systems have harmed and oppressed people. So imagination isn't always a good thing. And I think that's what we have to think about is not everything is just so clear cut. Not everything is just one way. Like even with something like empathy, empathy can also have scary ramifications as well. We can use it as a good thing, but like imagination, like creativity, it can be used in a positive way, but just as it can be used in a positive way or received in a positive way, it can also be received and used in a negative way. And I think sometimes we need that reminder. And I think that's what this episode was reminding all the characters in the story, that their imagination, like they set up early on with the Holosuite, is their fantasies, their wildest dreams, but also the source of their wildest dreams, the things that make them happy, is also the things that can make them unhappy. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but they often, if they hear someone is a social worker, they won't let them serve jury duty. No, I haven't heard that, but I have heard similar things of like certain professions. They don't want them as jurors. The gift and the curse of social work and other, I'm not saying that social workers are without fault. There's no, no one profession is perfect, but many social workers you encounter, the gift and the curse is compassion and empathy across the board, finding morsels of compassion everywhere. And that's one of the reasons why I think compassion and empathy are some of the more powerful traits. And as you're saying, they can be dangerous because you can empathize or have compassion for ideas and things that don't deserve that. And, you know, I've been, I've been rereading the Tao Te Ching with, and, you know, the idea that the way the things that we go is it's neither, it's not just subtlety and it's not just action. It's subtlety and action at the same time. Or we talk about the dialectic or even some of the therapy modalities that, that I work in, dialectical behavior therapy is accepting many things are happening at the same time and these things are happening and there's an interplay between them. I think this goes back to the title of the episode, If Wishes Were Horses, which you said is part of that old nursery rhyme and saying, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Because it's kind of using that in a tongue-in-cheek way where it's showing that if wishes came true, everybody would be happy. It's showing the other side of that, where if wishes or dreams came true, you could also create a situation where everybody could die, right? Which we saw in this as well. So it's not just that if wishes were horses, everyone could ride. You know, if wishes were horses, everyone could also get trampled because that's how our minds can work also. It could work either way. Yeah. Which is also really interesting because I was I was talking with some friends today and we were all talking about how eighty to ninety percent of the things that bring us pain, worry distress in the world uh, have to do with medical and monetary inequity and how, honestly, most of us that we know a good amount of the things that we struggle with 
would just would would go out the door if we had just unfettered access to to food, medicine, and shelter. And not to say that there aren't parts that you'd still deal with. There's still chemical imbalances. There's still other things. But you know, when someone's like, "Oh, what would we do if everyone had a house?" I'm like, "That'd be awesome if everybody had a house." What would we do if everyone had food? I don't think we would get trampled, Sam. I think that that's just not how I. That's just not how I believe. I think it would be great if if we were giving if if people had what they needed. Well, this goes back to dialectical and historical materialism, where the world isn't about your thoughts; it's about our circumstances and our situations and our context. Right? It's actually the other way. Instead of our ideas changing the world. It's more like the world and our circumstances mostly inform our thoughts, going back to some of the biological things that we might not be able to control. But then even then, right, it could be a product of our environment from being raised in poverty, not getting the right nutrition or like environmental contamination. So there's a lot of other factors that could even control the seemingly things that seem out of our control because we don't have a way to really quantify it yet. But, you know, all around, everything is being affected by capitalism and the way we're extracting from the world. So to that point, then, our unhappiness is from scarcity that is man-made. It's a false scarcity because there is enough of all of that to go around. But because of the capitalist institutions that we live in, it doesn't want that because then it would destroy the profit-making ability. So then you have to create a fake scarcity which makes money, but then also makes people very unhappy. So what would the world look like without that false scarcity? We don't know yet because we've never lived in it. So people always assume, right, that if it was the other way, we would still be unhappy, but they're not basing that on any evidence because we've never lived in that situation. Yes. And I have a sneaking suspicion that that's not the case. And when people have access to things when they have access to education, when they have access to healthcare, when they have access to food, when they have access to safety. I no longer really like to refer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs because one, it's very Eurocentrist, even though he took many of his ideas from First Nation people that he spent time with. Without crediting. Without crediting. Without crediting. So fuck Maslow. But I know that it's a it's a shorthand that if I say that, people understand what I'm talking about. And I believe that that if those things were met, we would it, it's we would be in a totally amazing society. I'm not saying that all things would go away, but I think a lot of things would go away. Even those assholes who say those things, they kind of know that the lack of scarcity would make people happy. Because why do people go on vacation? Why do people go on resorts? Because all their expectations and needs are met and it makes them happy. So they've temporarily experienced that. And, and then people will say when, when non-rich people go on vacation, how dare they? How dare they try? They don't have any money. Why would they do that? Because we all are entitled. We all earn nice things. The word deserve can be bothersome to me, but we, we all can use escapes from the the world that we live in i think about the 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 idea of 
our thoughts not being ours and people having access to our thoughts and imagination, especially because, in my opinion, one of the, the villains of the world, Elon Musk is trying to develop the, the neural link, this way for us <laughs> to talk to each other with our minds. And he also is trying to buy Twitter. And he also says stuff like, if you could prove to me how to end world hunger, I'd, I'd pay the money right now and I would do it. And then people are like, yo, we have the receipts. He's a bad person with a lot of money who says that he is a humanitarian, but he's not. And, you know, rich people do not benefit from helping other people unless they can make it look like they're, they're doing something good and they, the tax write-offs for charity are quite large. <laughs> if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. There's a connection between Neuralink and him buying Twitter, which is owning and knowing all of our private thoughts, right? And this connects back to the episode because this episode also speaks to a time before the normalization of social media, because now we tell everyone our private thoughts. And yes, it does cause problems like the show outlined, but that's now the new norm because lots of money is being made on social media platforms. And we go on and we see the thoughts of a bunch of our friends and strangers and people we don't even know, right? Imagine living in a time where you have access to personal private thoughts of people you don't even know, strangers, right? Which I'm sure when this episode was being written, they couldn't even imagine what this was going to look like. But probably they had an inkling because they knew the internet was going to start. But they probably weren't even trying to write a warning about social media yet because it probably wasn't that big of a thing at that time or non-existent at that point. But now we know, right? So it's also interesting to look at this episode where they're having those conversations about those are your private thoughts. I shouldn't even know them. Or now everybody knows your private thoughts because they've manifested themselves into the world. And in the writer's minds, the way they're writing that future, you know, everybody's reacting to it as, as if it's very weird having no idea that today that wouldn't be that weird. And we take that for granted, how weird that is, how unnatural that is, that everything is the public square. There is no private mind. There is no private square. It's all out in public. And I think even for us leftists, we don't save a lot for the private. I think what we've done is try to take something that's already in existence, myself included, and then weaponize it to use it against that system, right? But sometimes people forget you also have to save something for yourself. Right. And even when we talked about me coming on this episode or doing some shows, I was like, oh, is putting myself out there going to be going to put me in a place that I don't want to be? Could it affect my job? Could it affect things? And but then you have to look at who we are, what our values are. and. No, I don't really think it's going to affect that. No, I, I don't really worry about it. But when, when, at least my experience is sometimes 
when you have very left thoughts, you don't always share everything with people you know. Sometimes I'm at work and people say something and go, oh, okay, uh-huh. You know, so I, I totally, I totally agree. And then Star Trek becomes strangely a little anachronistic because their future is informed that there's no social media, which is interesting. They don't even have Google. Right. They, they do things in a, di- in a, in a, in a little different way. And, you know, when you made that connection of Elon Musk and Neuralink and having access to all this aggregate data and the idea of looking of people's thoughts talking to each other or how when you read about some of these genealogy websites, 23andMe or whatever, sell, selling their information to pharmaceutical companies or the fact that Jeff Bezos owns grocery chains or that uh, insurance companies buy pharmacies were creating these oligopolies and it's happening in front of us and we don't care because if you if you like if you dislike elon musk oh you're 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 just a tryhard you're just a virtue signaler you don't like him because he's successful or these weird these weird ideas but I, i i don't like the idea of anybody i mean i don't i just i don't even it, but I don't really believe people should have a billion dollars. So <laughs> let alone one person should, one person that has access to all of these things should also have access to people's thoughts. Sorry. Actually, to your point about people not having a billion dollars, Elon Musk and what he's doing lately or how obscene and absurd he comes off online speaks to that point about Nobody needs a billion dollars, not just because of the power it wields, but also after a certain point of making money and having so much money, there is no quantitative difference in your quality of life. Like after a certain number, whatever number you have after that, it doesn't improve your life at all because you're constrained by the number of hours in a day and your lifespan, which is why so many of these motherfuckers always want to live forever because they understand this. But despite that fantasy, there is no way for them to do unlimited coke let's say they can't party unlimited because they'll die they can't live out their fantasy indefinitely because they will die so they're going to drink the same bottles of wine somebody like who has a hundred million dollars less than they do they're going to take the same vacations they're going to do a lot of the same things because there's nothing more to improve so because you can't have a quality of life difference then they're just like what am i going to do with this money so then because their life can't get improved all they can do is use their money to fuck around with other people, right? After a certain point, the excess of that money, that's all it can do. It can no longer improve your quality of life because you only are awake a certain amount of hours a day and you're only going to live for so long. And your life is also very fragile, meaning you can't do so much to your body and withstand it, right? So then anything in excess, it can't be inward facing. It has to be outward facing because if you keep it facing inward facing, it'll kill yourself. You spend all that money on yourself to try to maximize enjoyment and pleasure, you will die. So then you have to try to use that money outwardly. And instead of doing it in a humanitarian way, because you're like, I can't get 1 billion times happier spending that money, right? If I spent uh, half a million versus 50 billion, right? I'm not going to get that much qualitatively happier. So then that money can only become a liability. That money can only be used in a way that's going to harm a lot of people, fuck with a lot of people. And it's not even going to bring him that much more pleasure than he already has fucking with people. He's just going to do it because he can, because 
when you have that much unchecked power and wealth, then you're just doing things. You're experimenting. You're like, what can I do with this money? It's almost like ruminations. What kind of negative thoughts can I have? Because those are the thoughts I'm told not to have, right? Positive thoughts. Nobody tells you don't have positive thoughts. People are telling you what negative thoughts you can't have, right? So the same thing with negative actions. People are telling him not to do these bad things. So that makes him want to do those bad things because quote unquote freedom, right? This goes back to the white male Western ideas about freedom is what can I do? What's the frontier? What's left for you to do? Only more bad shit, right? So to your point, there should be no billionaires because it becomes a liability to society. Right. And in in the Star Trek universe, aside from the Ferenginar, um, you know, the Federation, there theoretically aren't billionaires. Because in that world, in that post-scarcity utopia, which as we pointed out, is most most future uto- future worlds are not like this, they've realized that if you focus on, you know, furthering the world and discovery and and giving people what they need, it's just a better outcome. And another thing we saw, right, is going back to what you were saying about Bashir and Jazia Dax that he created, that Jazia Dax was like furniture, very flat, right? And so were a lot of the other characters like Quark made women and they didn't even get to talk, right? This is something that they talk about in feminist media theory about how women are often portrayed as furniture. And that's what they were in this episode, which there's two things happening. They're making a criticism of it, but also they're still living up to it. So unfortunately, it's not really a great criticism because they're still doing it, right? They're kind of doing it and lampshading it. But the person who doesn't do it, who doesn't make their imagination flat, who doesn't dehumanize in this way, is Cisco. Cisco's the only one whose imagination invents somebody that is much more well-rounded, much more three-dimensional, much more human, even though it is purely fictional, which speaks to his empathy, right? It's all about he was able to empathize with this character, which is why it's more grounded. So even Bashir creates a fantasy version of Dax that isn't empathetic in that way, which just hollows her out into a sex pot, into his sex slave in his mind, right? And he's very hollow at this point as well. He's, he's a very shallow, vapid person at this point in his development. Yeah, so really the only person who came out well in this episode was Cisco, but it's also saying that imagination requires empathy, otherwise it's going to really dehumanize, right? But it's also saying that type of empathy in imagination, that takes a lot of energy, that takes a lot of creativity. It's much easier to imagine things as being flat. Right. Just as it's much easier to, theoretically, it's much easier to be a conservative piece of shit because that you could just say, "Ah, oh, this is how I believe you." You're you're not. You don't do. A, you might not do a lot of reading. You might not do a lot of work. You just are like choose choose a thing and don't do as much education. You know, being having compassion and having empathy and having left politics sometimes sucks in that you have to do so much work. And I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying thinking about and and creating safe spaces and dealing with people and takes a lot more work. I mean, even think about conspiracy theories, right? 
when I say imagining things as being round, being harder to imagine than things being flat, just like flat earth, right? You know, when I'm a kid, if you tell me the world is flat, that's much easier for my mind to conceptualize than a three-dimensional object in my mind. That ability to imagine three dimensions in the mind is very difficult. And they say over time, humans have been getting better at that because we're more used to that idea. So we go back years ago and it was hard for people to imagine three dimensions in their mind because it was hard for people to create something like that, like a computer monitor that could show you some image that is three-dimensional and you can move it all around. Now that we have that, it's easier to imagine. But when you just describe it and you try to make that 3D image in your mind without ever having seen it on a computer screen, that is much more difficult, right? So flat earth, yeah, that's easier to imagine. Just like a flat person is easier to imagine. Just like COVID is a hoax is easier to imagine because you can live in a world with a lot of technology, but then how can you live in that world with a lot of technology that can't solve COVID, right? And the answer is, is because it's complicated. Viruses are much more complicated and you're overvaluing the types of technology that we do have, right? Because it's all about like entertainment technology, which isn't the same as medicine. So then they can't grapple with these ideas. So it's easier to just imagine we live in a world where the government has all this technology, but we still have COVID. Then it could only be because they're faking it because with the technology that we have, we could easily cure it. So the simple answer must be, this must not be real. This is some kind of trick, right? To a child, that's much easier to imagine than this world of gray areas, this world of like unintended consequences and things that are out of our control, right? It's much easier to think everything is in somebody's control. Right. And because also gray area takes work. Great thinking takes work. So I think this episode, there's also a warning then about the power of belief and speculation, which we not only see in real life in how religion can get weaponized or conspiracy theories, but also political identities. But I think there's also kind of a funny theme that happens at the end where it's like to get rid of the problem, all you have to do is think better of it. You just have to change your thoughts, which I think is also in a self-wishful thinking, which only worked in this episode. But I think a lot of people also buy into that type of magical thinking that, you know, it's easy for Westerners to victim blame a country that's been looted and sanctioned and just say, well, if they just thought of a better idea, if they all change their political camp or just change the way they thought about things or thought different of things, they wouldn't be in that kind of mess, right? Right. And that becomes like leads into like prosperity gospel or bootstraps thinking or victim blaming thinking. And some of these thoughts about empathy, compassion, and also when it comes to dogma will be fleshed out more in episodes to come. So this was a very silly, wild episode, but there was a lot of things that people can take from this that they can use to analyze the real world and even their political thinking and think about how, I don't know how to say it, but it is silly. Like this episode is silly because the way people think about how the world works is silly. I'm talking about even people who are progressive or on the left. The way they analyze things sometimes is still within the realm of fantasy or the liberal idea of like the world is made up of ideas, this utopian thinking that utopian thinking often turns into victim blaming because why aren't we living in this utopia? Why isn't that world better? Why isn't that country doing better? And it must be because they did it because it's so easy to live in a utopia. So they fucked up somehow. 
And then richer countries, why are they doing better? Oh, they must have been just made up of smarter people who thought better of things, right? So there is this way where it is silly and harmful then to buy into this idea of utopian. It's just all about ideas, thinking, because then it's easy to buy into this belief that Western countries are rich because they deserve it. And these poor countries are poor because they fucked up. Right. And that just f- couldn't be further from the truth. And it's reductive and simplistic. And as you said, even though the episode is silly, it gave me a lot of pause and a lot of things to think about. So thank you. Also, a silly episode to watch is different when you talk about it. There's a difference between passively consuming it and actively deconstructing it because you need different things to deconstruct. Like there are different needs in passive viewing than there is in deconstruction. So you could have a very exciting episode, but not have much to talk about. You could have a very silly episode, but it offers the right things to deconstruct. So we won't know how good an episode is for discussion until we do it. True. Because even at first, uh, you know, when I was first watching the episode and taking notes, I was like, well, this is, this is actually going to be, I'm going to explain how, how Davo feeds into lottery culture and gambling culture and how that affects systems. And then that actually didn't happen in the unpacking of the episode. And I'm sure that sort of unpacking can happen at a different time. So I really respect you as, as a writer and person and, it's nice to to be challenged and to do this sort of thinking with you. So I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Mr. Thoreau, for being on the show. And you're actually not just a sub. You're just the host right now. So if you like this episode, remember to give the Southpaw Network a stellar review wherever you listen to podcasts. Support us on Patreon. You can find all pertinent info at southpawpod.com. Scott. Where can people find you on the web? If you want to listen to my music, it's just uh, Scott Thoreau at Bandcamp. Uh, I'm pretty much inactive on Twitter, but I'm Scott Thoreau. On Instagram, I'm Scott Thoreau. My podcast on hiatus is Zebras in America. But, you know, just what what you really should do is, is support Southpaw because they do work that you just cannot believe. And the Discord is awesome. And It's a Patreon thing that I don't even have to think twice about. All right. Until then. Da-da-da.